the disappearance of an attorney and his son, a brother that never gets to meet his little sister. Best friends disappear on their way to the post office. 3 a.m. is when the devil knocks. A possible cult connection? Welcome to State of Missing. Hi and welcome to episode 33 of State of Missing podcast. Uh, this week we're going to cover a crazy state. If you read the uh, title of this episode, I'm sure you already know what state we're covering. But um, before we get into all of that mess and all the mess that that state involves... I want to say thank you to everyone who continues to listen, all of the likes and the shares and uh, everything that I have gotten um, since starting this podcast back up. Um, I appreciate everything that you do and please continue to listen and please continue to tell your friends how great my voice is to go to sleep to, if nothing else. Um, (laughs) So this week... We're talking about New Mexico. Um, Let's talk about the statistics real quick. I'm going to get into the numbers, and then I'm going to tell you what I learned about these numbers. Um, On the Charlie Project, um, there's 160 cases listed, with 83 of those cases being male, 76 of those cases being female, and then I guess there's one case with an unlisted sex um, on the Doe Network, there are 73 male cases listed and 55 female cases listed with a total of 92 cases on the Doe Network. NamUs, um, of course, has the biggest number with 224 cases. 105 of those are female and the remaining 119 are male. So... <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into sometimes how um, the selection of the cases work. For this this episode, what I did was I pulled all 160 names off of the Charlie Project, and I went through each case individually to look at the details. Um, and then I narrow that down and narrow it down and narrow it down until I ultimately select the cases that I end up telling you, which is oftentimes very difficult, um, which is also oftentimes why I end up telling you about so many cases in uh, some states. But what I really learned in going through New Mexico's cases, at least on the Charlie Project, is that there were several uh, several cases in which all I got were was uh, few details are available in this case, uh, which is always very gut wrenching to me. It's it's if you've never gone on the Charlie Project uh, or any of those websites, and you just listen to me tell you about these cases each week, and you don't you've never actually looked at those profiles. Um, it has all like the demographics of the person and the date of miss and all that stuff. And then it has the details of the case somewhere on the profile. Um, and a lot of the times when I was going through these cases, 
uh, would see uh, this person was last seen on this date and few details are available in this case. And I'm not talking about like just old cases. I am talking about like recent cases, 90s cases, uh, 2000s cases, 2010s cases. There were just so many cases in which there was no information and it became so frustrating to me. Uh, also, another thing that I did obviously observe in going through those cases is that it's New Mexico, so I did expect for there to be a large Hispanic population, and there was. Um, there were, I think, more Hispanic missing than uh, Caucasian, but on the Charlie Project's list of missing cases, I only found one African-American case, and it was of a female, um, which few details were available in her case. Also, obviously, I am into true crime. I hadn't done really any kind of research about, you know, New Mexico and their issues before I started looking at these cases. And I very quickly uh, drew a understanding that there could potentially be a serial killer in New Mexico. Uh, there are several women, and some of the some of the profiles on the Charlie Project do say this: that there were uh, is a group of women. And if you don't know about it, um, I I will tell you what it's often referred to as, and what they believe that some of these disappearances could be connected to is the West Mesa murders. Um, if you don't know anything about it, I highly suggest you go and look it up. It is super interesting and still a mystery. But essentially, um, in West Mesa, Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was this killing field in which 11 women's remains was were found buried in the desert. I think the the bodies were discovered around 2009, but on the Charlie Project, it does lead um, you to think that maybe, you know, these women are some of those, some victims. Um, there was also a serial killer, uh, the toy box killer, David Parker Ray, um, who could be responsible for some of the missing women. But I don't necessarily think so because David Parker Ray died in 2002 and some of these disappearances occurred after that. So there's a lot of, and obviously we can not um, just turn a blind eye to the fact that this is New Mexico and what's in New Mexico or what places in New Mexico, Roswell, um, so <laughs> there's, there could be the potential for alien abductions if you believe in that kind of thing. I'm not going to rule it out. It certainly could be a possibility, <clears throat> but I think there's a high likelihood that there is some kind of serial killer or was some kind of serial killer and at least a portion of the missing women in New Mexico are uh, a result of that. Now. I'm not certain here, but I obviously I think the higher authorities 
are uh, probably looking into that. Um, <clears throat> so, now, I told you that there was 160 cases that I went through, um, and I did go through all of those, and I narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down, and what I ultimately ended up with was uh, 10 cases. So, I'm not going to cover all 10 cases in one episode. I'd have you here for three hours. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to split New Mexico up into two parts. This is going to be part number one. Um, I'm not going to make you wait two weeks for part number two. Uh, I'm going to, this episode is going to be released on the 12th. So part two should be released on the 19th. And then after part two is released on the 19th, we're going to take a little break for the holidays and we're going to come back on the 9th with a a new episode. Um, I I will tell you right now, it's going to be one of the big states and I'm going to have a little bit of surprise to go with it. Um, I haven't decided which big state. And when I say big state, I'm talking about um, like California or or Florida where the cases are in the thousands. Uh, It's going to take me a minute to go through those cases to figure out, you know, which ones I'm going to cover. But I will also have, um, uh, like I said, a surprise for that episode or those episodes because it might end up being a multi-parter. We'll just have to see. Um, So, (sighs) I'm going to do five cases in each part. um, And we're going to go in chronological order just because that's the uh, easiest way and the best way to get through all of this. We have a large variety of cases here and I'm not going to lie to you there are more juvenile cases than I'm used to covering Um, but the juvenile cases were obviously the cases with the most information a lot of the time because when a kid goes missing everybody cares. Um, when an adult goes missing, sometimes it just gets, you know, swept under the rug or brushed off or people forget. When a kid goes missing, this the same thing does not happen. So let's kick off part one. We're going to get into our cases for today. And um, I hope you enjoy. So our first case out of New Mexico is going to be the oldest case I think I've ever covered to date. This one goes back to 1896. Let me tell you about the historical disappearance of Albert Jennings Fountain. The only missing database I found this on is the Doe Network, where it is case number 3413DMNM. There is a wiki page on this case and Albert Fountain himself, if you are interested. And I got a lot of good information from there. So, uh, O'Al was born on Staten Island, New York, on October 23rd of 1838. His parents were Solomon Jennings and Catherine De La Fontaine. When he was uh, a younger man, he went to California. <clears throat> and after moving there, he started calling himself by an uh, anglicized version of his mother's family name. Um, so, her last name was Fontaine. Uh, he changed it to Fountain, um, and I believe it is Fountain because it's spelt F-O-U-N-T-A-I-N instead of F-O-U-N-T-A-I-N-E. So, 
Uh, I'm not really sure why he decided to start calling himself that, um, but in any case, he did. So Albert studied law in California and was admitted to the bar in 1860. Albert was working as a reporter for the Sacramento Union and went to Nicaragua in 1860 to cover the filibuster expedition of William Walker. Apparently, William Walker didn't like how Albert was reporting, so Albert ends up arrested and sentenced to be shot. But old Al escaped like a ninja and went back to California. I'm not really sure how. I couldn't find any information as to how he managed to escape, but we do know that he did not get shot and ended up back in California. Now here comes 1861 and thus the Civil War starts. In August of 1861, Albert enlisted in the Company E of the 1st California Infantry Regiment of the Union Army. He was elected first sergeant for his company. In 1862, he took part of the recapture of the New Mexico Territory. Also in 62, he got married. Uh, he married a lady by the name of Mariana Perez of Masilla. Uh, throughout their marriage, they obviously do a little fornicating, and they ended up with four sons and two daughters. Albert uh, moves to the rank of second lieutenant before being discharged on October 31st, of 1864. After discharge, he almost immediately joins the New Mexico Volunteers because of the ongoing Indian Wars. In June of 1865, Albert was pursuing hostile Apaches when he was seriously injured. He spent a whole night trapped under his dead horse. He had a bullet in his thigh, an arrow in his forearm, and another arrow in his shoulder. He recovered from those injuries and he was also discharged from the New Mexico Volunteers. Albert and his family end up settling in El Paso, Texas, and there he worked for the U.S. Property Commissions, which investigated and disposed of farmer Confederate property. He was then made the customs collector for the El Paso region. Uh, he was then appointed an elected judge, and then finally he became the assessor and collector of internal revenue for the Western District of Texas. So, old Albert was making some money moves, and he was doing it pretty quickly. In November of 1869, he, he won a seat as a Republican in the Texas Senate, where he served the 12th and 13th Texas Legislature. He was elected as president uh, pro tempore during the second session of the 12th legislature, legislature, I'm sorry, and served as lieutenant governor ex officio at the same time because the office was vacant. The most notable thing that Albert accomplished was pushing through the bill that reestablished the Texas Rangers because the Rangers had been abolished after the Civil War. Now, Albert had some radical Republican views, and they tended to make Texas Democrats pretty angry. Because of that, Albert was challenged to several duels. Um, we don't really know how most of those duels ended up, but we do know that Albert killed at least one man by the name of Frank Williams. In 1873, Albert and his family moved from El Paso to Masilla. 
Once in Masilla, Albert became a lawyer. Um, now, Albert spoke fluent Spanish, so this helped out a lot during jury trials. Albert ends up appointed assistant district attorney and also served as a um, probate judge and a deputy court clerk. Oh, Al is a busy, busy man. Because <laughs> besides all that stuff, he founded a newspaper in 1877, which was called the Masilla Valley Independent. Um, it was issued in both English and Spanish. He also founded the Masilla Dramatic Society and the Masilla Valley Opera House, which were both originally operated by his family. Now, as a lawyer, Albert most Albert's most famous client was Billy the Kid. Albert lost Billy's case in 1881, and Billy was convicted of murder despite the evidence in the case. But Billy escaped from jail anyway, so... Um, Albert was elected to the New Mexico Territorial Legislature to win this election. He defeated a man by uh, a man named Albert Bacon Fall. This is only important to mention because at the time of his disappearance, Albert was investigating and prosecuting suspe uh, suspected cattle rustlers, most specifically a man by the name of Oliver M. Lee. In this case, he once again found himself in opposition with Albert Fall because Fall was Oliver Lee's attorney. All right, so enough about uh, Albert's life. Uh, you want to know about the disappearance, I'm sure. Now, this is widely known as the disappearance of Albert Fontaine, uh, Fountain, but he isn't the only person that went missing. It is known, but most frequently not talked about, that Albert's son is missing too, but good luck finding much information about him. But let's get into the details of the disappearance. Albert and his eight-year-old son Henry were in Lincoln, New Mexico to present that cattle wrestling case to the Lincoln County Courthouse. Apparently, during those uh, proceedings, Albert received an anonymous note that said, if you drop this, we will be your friends. If you go on with it, you will never reach home alive. Albert wasn't a punk, obviously, so he continued on with the case and he ultimately secured 32 indictments in it. On January 30th of 1896, Al and Henry began the 140 mile three to four day journey home. Uh, they were traveling by a four wheel covered uh, buckboard wagon led by a two horse team. They traveled through the Sacramento mountains, stopping for the night at the Muscalero village where they acquired a pinto pony uh, from a friend. On January 31st, they were traveling to La Luz to spend the night when Albert noticed two riders. These two riders were sometimes ahead of them and sometimes behind them. These riders made Albert a little uneasy. Um, on February 1st, they were on their way to Masilla by way of the Tularose Basin and White Sands. On this path, he met with a stagecoach 
whose driver mentioned three riders in the distance. Albert rested for a while and then continued on. He met up with another stagecoach and noticed the same three riders in the distance. Now Henry was apparently sick, so Albert decided to keep going instead of taking a rest that night. I guess to get Henry home as soon as possible. Unfortunately, neither Albert or Henry make it home and they were never seen again. There were two search parties for Albert and Henry. Uh, one of those search parties was led by one of Albert's sons with the help of two Mescalero Apache scouts and they began to piece together the evidence. They found where a man had knelt and fired from behind a, a growth of shrubs um, leaving shell casings on the ground. They discovered a site where two men had tended three horses. They followed wagon tracks and discovered a pool of blood. There was also the discovery of a blood-soaked handkerchief with a nickel and a dime tied in the corner. And then they followed the wagon tracks of the uh, buckboard and the hoof tracks of the horses east for some 12 miles into sand dunes west of a small and isolated mountain range called the Harillas or Jarillas. It's spelled J-A-R-I-L-L-A-S. At that location, they found Albert's carriage, which had been plundered and abandoned. Search parties continued to look for bodies and a reward was also offered by the New Mexico governor for the capture of the killers. Eventually, Oliver Lee and his two employees, William McNew and James Gillian, were arrested for the murder of Henry. Charges against McNew were dismissed and Lee and Gillian were acquitted of charges. On October 20th of 1900, the Albuquerque Daily Citizen ran an article reporting that uh, charred remains of a man and boy had been found in a canyon in the Sacramento Mountains. The sheriff said it was impossible to identify the remains as Albert and Henry. Albert's uh, oldest son, J.J. Fountain, said that items were found with the remains that would not have belonged to his father. But admittedly, he said it didn't mean it wasn't them because the killer could have put those items there to throw off investigators. J.J. later uh, seemed to resign to the idea that it was his dad and brother because there were no other reported disappearances of a man and a boy in that area that these remains could belong to. Now, obviously, at this point, if Albert and Henry weren't killed back then, they would not be alive in 2021. There's not much of an investigation still ongoing, in fact, uh, because this case is so old. Uh, there is also obviously no investigating agency listed for this case, um, but I wanted to tell this case because it's historical. I'm not a history buff myself, but I do think it's uh, pretty cool to run across these old cases and see how they fit in the time period. 
It also kind of blows my mind that there is a missing person reported that long ago. And I honestly think that if he wouldn't have been so influential and important, he would never, or we would never know about this disappearance today. So that's the historical disappearance of Albert and Henry Fountain. Okay, so now on to the non or not so historical cases. Uh, we're going to head this off with a juvenile case. Let's talk about the disappearance of David Joseph Miera. David is case number 1278DMNM in the Doe Network and case number MP6402 in NamUs. His NCMEC number is 1107558. David was born on March 7th of 1967. He was two at the time of his disappearance and he would be 54 now. David is a Hispanic male with light brown hair and brown eyes. He was only three foot tall and 50, 50 pounds when he disappeared. David has a birthmark on the center of his upper back, wide set eyes, and apparently unusually wide feet. This is the first case of its kind I have covered on this podcast. Obviously, I've covered juvenile cases and abductions and everything in between. But this case, uh, well, this case, the details are pretty different than any of the cases I can immediately recall. So David's mom, her name is Genevieve or Jenny Miera. In 1970, she was dating a man by the name of Leon Zerfus. Jeannie was 23 and Leon was 27. Now, David is not Leon's biological son. Jeannie met Leon after David was born. Now, both Jeannie and Leon were in this 60s hippie lifestyle, and presumably that's how they met. Well, they hit it off so well that Jeannie became pregnant with her and Leon's daughter. On January 10th of 1970, Jeannie was at Embudo Presbyterian Hospital giving birth to her daughter, Elia. Uh, I think it's Elia. It's E-E-L-I-A. Anyway, uh, she was giving birth to uh, her and Leon's daughter. Now, Leon was taking care of David while Jeannie was preoccupied. Um, Jeannie had to stay in the hospital for a couple of days, so Leon was in charge of taking care of David while she was there. I guess Leon and David had visited Jeannie on January 10th because she does uh, see them outside of the hospital as they are leaving. This is in Dixon, New Mexico. Now, nobody is really sure if Leon and David walked home or hitchhiked or rode in an apparently faded green 1946 Chevy pickup, but this is the last time that Jeannie ever saw David. I guess this is the last time that anybody really saw David. Two days later, on January 12th of 70, Jeannie went home. Jeannie, David, and Leon lived five or six miles from the hospital east of Dixon in an area known as Canoncito, I believe is how it's pronounced. When Jeannie gets back home with Elia, 
she's surprised to see that David and all of his toys and clothes were gone. So what does Leon Zerfus have to say about this? By the way, I'm really only calling him Leon because apparently he uh, was not fond of that name. He would use his last name or go by a variety of different names like Bill, Joe, Jose, and even William. So Leon tells Jenny that he gave David away. Well, who did he give David to? That's where it gets a little complicated because fucking Leon is a liar, in my opinion, and can't keep his story straight. He has a few different stories about who has David, including his sister from Mexico, a hippie family who lived in a bus, a childless pair of college graduates from the eastern U.S., and a family named Phillips or Phelps, and a blonde photographer. Now, I'm not 100% sure why, but Jeannie doesn't leave Leon because of, you know, David's disappearance. I'm not blaming her. I think there may have been some psychological control that Leon had over her, and that's why she didn't leave. No matter, though, uh, Jeannie, Leon, and their daughter ended up moving to California, it didn't last very long, though, because Jeannie and Leon got into a violent argument, as it is described, and Jeannie and Elia went back to New Mexico. Then, over a year after he was last seen, is when Jeannie reports David missing. Jeannie would later characterize Leon as an unfaithful and violent man who abused her and David. Now, Dixon, New Mexico, where David went missing from, was known as a hippie enclave in 1970, and many of its residents, including Jeannie and probably Leon, were involved in drugs. Jeannie went on to have five more children that she raised by herself, by herself uh, near Santa Cruz, California, in 1986 on one of Jeannie and Elia's many trips to New Mexico to look for David, Elia ran into Leon. She asked her father about what happened to David. He once again stuck with his story that he gave him away. Several of David's relatives and even the family's former neighbor believe that Leon murdered David. Unfortunately, Jeannie died in 1989 without knowing what really happened to her son. Uh, Leon Zerfes died in 2005 without providing anything else about how David disappeared. Elia promised her mother before her death that she wouldn't stop looking for David, and she still does. She is the biggest advocate for her brother's case. Uh, so, if you can help Elia finally get some answers, please contact the New Mexico State Police. Next, we're going to talk about a double disappearance. Both are juveniles, so let's get into who they are and what they look like. This is the disappearance of Billy and Mary Lou Sinna. Billy, the older of the two, is a Hispanic male born on September 27th of 1967. He was 11 at the time of his disappearance and he'd be 54 now. He stood at 4 foot 8 and weighed 65 pounds. Uh, 
He has brown hair and brown eyes. He has a birthmark on his left shoulder blade and a strawberry birthmark under his ribs on the right side of his back. He was last seen wearing a t-shirt and black pants. Mary Lou is a Hispanic female born on March 2nd of 1970. She was nine at the time of her disappearance and would be 51 now. She stood at four foot five and 50 pounds. She has black hair and brown eyes, and she was last seen wearing a red halter top. Now, there is not a lot of information about the details of this case online. All you can really find is their Charlie Project profile, uh, the Doe Network profiles, and their NamUs profiles, um, Billy's uh, Doe Network number is 4112DMNM. His name is, is MP6643 and his NCMEC number is 603133. Mary Luzdo number is 2915DFNM. Her name is, is MP6644 and her NCMEC is the same as Billy's 603133. What I was able to find, which was a great help, was a YouTube video. A lady by the name of Kirsty Skye makes a video series called Vanished, where she talks about missing cases like I do here. Her episode of Vanished, titled The Disappearance of Billy and Mary Lucina, is where I got a pretty good amount of details in this case. I'll link the video in the show notes if you want to go watch the video or, or any of her other videos um, in her Vanished series. In 1979, when this disappearance takes place, Billy was a sixth grader at Truman Middle School in Albuquerque. He lived with his mother and eight-year-old half-sister. Mary Lou was Billy's cousin and closest friend. She was a fourth grader at Longfellow Elementary, and she too lived in Albuquerque with her mother and two older brothers who were aged 12 and 15. On Saturday, September 22nd of 1979, Billy spent the day at Mary Lou's house. Billy had begged his mom the previous day to stay over at Mary Lou's, um, and she agreed since she had to work on this Saturday. She told Billy, though, that uh, when she got off of work, that she would take him to the state fair as a birthday present because his 12th birthday was only a few days away. Billy and Mary Lou spent most of their Saturday morning playing outside. Mary Lou's mom does send, them, uh, does send the pair to the grocery store at some point, but they return from this little trip without uh, any incidents or issues. At some point, Billy went into the house to get a drink of water, but once his thirst was quenched, he goes right back outside. At some point, the pair asks Mary Lou's mom if they could go over to the post office to play on the lawn. This is because at the time, Albuquerque was mostly desert, so grass was sparse and the post office had grass. Mary Lou's mom says that they can go, but tells them to be back before dark. The pair was last seen in the vicinity of Edith Road and the 300 block of Mountain Road Northeast in the Martinez Town neighborhood. 
The post office was at 1135 Broadway Northeast, which was a busy street next to a railway. It was only about a block away from Mary Lou's house. When the pair didn't go back to Mary Lou's house by an appropriate time, Mary Lou's mom goes to Billy's house to see if the pair was at her sister's. Of course, they weren't. This was around 6 p.m. The moms together searched the neighborhood, but found no traces of the children. Billy's mom began to wonder if Billy had convinced Mary Lou to go to the state fair with him uh, via bus. Billy's mom had uh, told him never to take the bus by himself, so getting Mary Lou to go with him seemed like it could have been an 11-year-old's loophole. Billy's mom went to the fairgrounds and looked for the kids while Mary Lou's mom stayed at home in case they returned. Billy's mom got to the fairground about 8 p.m. and searched for the pair for a couple of hours uh, without any luck. This is the point where Billy's mom contacts the police to report her son and niece's disappearance. The police tell these two obviously worried mothers that they uh, shouldn't worry and that Billy and Mary Lou were probably just at a friend's house and would show back up. The mothers knew better though. See, Billy and Mary Lou never stayed out that late. In fact, doing so would be extremely abnormal for either of them. The mothers continued to search the neighborhood, seeing as how they weren't going to get any help from the police. They looked for them till about 2 a.m. Police finally decided to take the disappearance seriously and they began questioning neighbors and possible witnesses. Through those witness statements, they determined that they were last seen on Edith Road, as I mentioned. The statements from the neighbors is also where the police learned that the last sighting of the pair was at about 10 a.m. A few theories were thrown about. Uh, One theory suggested that Billy and Mary Lou hopped into a boxcar on the nearby railway as a train was stopped to play inside and they accidentally locked themselves in. They were able to track down the possible train and search the boxcars extensively, but no traces of the pair were found. The search for the children continued, but obviously it was unsuccessful. A woman from Gallup, who Billy and Mary Lou both knew, was initially considered a suspect. She told police she knew nothing about the disappearance. They were still pretty suspicious of this woman, um, so they ended up going to the Navajo reservation to try and get some more information, but it didn't turn up anything useful. There was also an alleged sighting of two kids resembling the Sinas hitchhiking south towards El Paso, but the witness of this could not verify the description of the kids they saw or when it was exactly that they were seen. Photos and flyers were distributed all across the state, but even this provided no uh, further clues as to what happened. This case didn't seem to have much movement for a long time. But over 30 years later, in 2011, police say they have another possible suspect. So who is this possible suspect? Well, his name is Michael Cordova. So who is he? Well, 
1979, he was Billy's mother's live-in boyfriend. Billy's younger sister tells police that Michael was a drug dealer and grew marijuana behind the house. Billy's sister remembered that shortly before Billy and Mary Lou disappeared, one of Michael's marijuana, marijuana plants went missing. She said that Michael blamed Billy for this missing plant and beat him pretty severely for it. Police have not been able to locate Michael Cordova to question him about the kid's disappearance. Um, police are also looking to speak to a woman by the name of Lisa uh, Ramirez. Apparently, Lisa Ramirez also lived at Billy's house in 1979. I have not located any articles or updates in which police have said that they have located and questioned either of these two subjects. So if you know either of these two people, please contact local law enforcement or even Albuquerque police um, so that, you know, they can speak to them. So what really happened to Billy and Mary Lou remains a mystery. There was a rumor that the pair had been murdered and buried in the basement of a house in the Martinez town neighborhood, but that rumor was never confirmed. What do you think? Do you think they ran away? Uh, were they abducted? Did they have an accident and they couldn't reach help? Is it unfortunately something more sinister like sex trafficking or murder? I don't know if any of us really have the answer. The answers really lie with Billy and Mary Lou and the person or persons that hurt them if they are in fact victims at someone else's hand. If you have any information about the disappearance or possible whereabouts of Billy and Mary Lucena, please contact the Albuquerque police. This next case was the most heart-wrenching case that I read about in the New Mexico cases. Granted, I'm covering several juvenile cases in this episode, but this is the one that hit me harder than the others. I try to look at all the cases equally, but I think for some of you, you'll end up feeling the same way and understand what I mean. This is a fairly well-known case. Uh, this is the disappearance of Antoinette Christine Cayadito. She is case number 61DFNM in the Doe Network, case number MP4401 in NamUs, and because she is a juvenile, her NCMEC number is 600709. Antoinette is a biracial female of Native American and Caucasian um, heritage. She was born on Christmas Day of 1976. She was nine at the time of her disappearance and she's 44, almost 45 now. At the time of her disappearance, she was four foot seven and 55 pounds. She has black hair and brown eyes. She has dark colored moles on her right cheek, nose, back, uh, both hands, and on her right knee. She also has scars on one of her knees and on her lip. Her ears are pierced and she wears sunglasses. Uh, I'm sorry, eyeglasses, not sunglasses. <laughs> I told you Antoinette is biracial, but she is most specifically of Navajo and Italian descent. And yes, she is as beautiful as that sounds. 
Um, she was last seen wearing a knee-length pink nightgown and possibly a silver chain with a small cross-shaped turquoise pendant. Anthonette was born to Penny Cayadito of the Navajo Nation and Anthony Montoya, who is of Italian and Hispanic descent. Her parents didn't stay together and ended up separating. After the separation, Antoinette and her younger sisters, Wendy and Sadie, were raised by their mother in Gallup, New Mexico. Antoinette was level-headed, wise beyond her years, dedicated to her education, friendly, caring, and dependable. By the time Antoinette was six, she was cooking for her sisters, ironing their clothes for the week, and played a large role in helping her mother take care of her sisters. Everyone who knew her said she showed great compassion for others. Her sister later described it as a caregiver's heart. Her favorite color was purple, same girl, and she enjoyed listening to Michael Jackson and Ronnie Millsap. And I don't know why, but her nickname was Squirrel. She was a fourth grader at Lincoln Elementary School at the time of her disappearance. Uh, she was attentive and above and an above average student, but she also had a flair for sports and physical activities, so much so that she won the Presidential Fitness Award in the fourth grade. She was also a religious young lady and participated in weekly um, Bible study. For the interest of this story, I will tell you that Antoinette and her sister and mother lived at 204 Arnold Circle Number 9 in Gallup, New Mexico. Let's talk about the evening of April 5th, 1986. On that evening, Antoinette's uh, mother decided to go out with some friends. Uh, Penny is her name. Uh, Penny gets a sitter to stay with the girls while she has a few drinks at a local bar with friends. Penny gets back home around midnight and sends the babysitter home. At about 3 a.m. on April 6th, the girls had been asleep since before mom had come home. Penny is hard asleep in bed. You know, that good, that good kind of sleep you get after you've been drinking. Uh, when you're pretty much dead to the world. Anyway, around 3 a.m., Antoinette and Wendy heard a knock at the door that wakes them up, apparently. Antoinette goes to answer the door, but before she does, she asks the knocker who they are. The man on the other side of the door claimed that he was Uncle Joe. Antoinette went to answer the door, and Wendy fell back to sleep. <clears throat> At about 7 a.m., Penny goes into the girls' room to wake them up for Bible school. Uh, she realizes at that time that Antoinette isn't there. After not being able to find Antoinette in the house, Penny searches the neighborhood and talks to her neighbors, but Antoinette is nowhere to be found. Penny calls the police to report her daughter missing, but they tell her that she would have to wait eight hours before making an official report. Penny continues searching the neighborhood until about 11 a.m., and presumably at that time, she would have been allowed to file a report. So who do you go straight to after hearing Wendy's account of what happened? 
well, Uncle Joe, of course. They obviously locate and question the uncle regarding the disappearance, and they quickly determine that he is not a suspect and had nothing to do with Antoinette's disappearance. He has never been a suspect in this case. A neighbor told police that they saw um, an older model brown truck with New Mexico license plates outside of Antoinette's house between 6.30 and 7 a.m. that morning. The witness saw a man get out of the truck and walk towards Antoinette's house. This witness, though, could not describe the man or the truck in great detail. It's about a year later before there is any kind of new information about the case. About a year after the disappearance, the Gallup Police Department received a phone call from what seemed to be a frantic young girl. The caller claimed to be Antoinette Cayadito and said she was in Albuquerque. Police were trying to get a location on the call, but before they could, they heard an angry male voice in the background say, who said you could use the phone? Then they hear the sound of a scuffle, then a scream, and the phone call is disconnected. The call lasted only 40 seconds, which wasn't long enough to trace. Penny listened to the call and believed that the female voice was her daughter's, but she didn't recognize the male voice. Police are still uncertain if this was actually Antoinette or just some kind of sick prank. Four years after the phone call, so five years after the disappearance, there was something else. In Carson City, Nevada, a waitress is working at a restaurant. A male and a female come into the restaurant with a teenage girl. The teenage girl matches Antoinette's description. The adult male and female appear unkempt. Um, and while the waitress is serving the group, the teenage girl keeps dropping her utensils on the ground. Almost like she was trying to get the waitress's attention. Each time the waitress would pick up the utensils, the girl would grab her hand and squeeze it each time um, she handed the utensils back to her. The patrons finish their meal and then they leave. As the waitress is cleaning the table, she finds a napkin with a written note under the teenage girl's plate. It had two brief messages written on it. Help me and call the police. Unfortunately, nothing ever came of this encounter and police are still unsure if the teenage girl was actually Antoinette. Antoinette's mom, um, Penny, died on April 18th of 1999 from a combination of cirrhosis of the liver and cardiac issues. Antoinette's dad died on August 17th of 2012. Not much of her father is actually mentioned in the case other than the fact that he uh, died in 2012. After Antoinette's disappearance, the family kind of drifted apart. Wendy, her sister, eventually ended up addicted to drugs and alcohol and was affiliated with gangs and it ended up with a criminal history. Um, all of this led to her children being taken away by the state. Now, she did eventually get her life back together and regain custody of her children. Uh, she lives in California now. 
not much of anything is known about what happened to Sadie. Apparently, Sadie and Wendy became estranged after the disappearance of their sister. Um, wherever Sadie is now, I hope that she is doing well. I will mention that police believe that Penny knew more than about Antoinette's disappearance than she let on. She apparently failed a lie detector test during the course of the investigation. She died before they were able to determine what it is that she knew. There are several sources that say Penny may have been involved in drugs at the time and after Antoinette's disappearance. What are the theories here? Obviously that Antoinette is uh, deceased, perhaps human trafficking. If the phone call and the alleged sighting were in fact Antoinette, then human trafficking seems likely to me at least. It rings especially similar to Elizabeth Smart's case. Something that was mentioned on the Wikipedia page is a disappearance that occurred three years after Antoinette's. It was the disappearance of Antoinette's 25-year-old mentally handicapped um, step-aunt, Louisa Estrada. Now, I looked everywhere for this disappearance for this disappearance so I could tell you about it but I could not find it anywhere in fact this week this Wikipedia page um, about Antoinette's disappearance is the only place her name comes up so if there is in fact a missing step aunt named Louisa Louisa Estrada I don't know if it's connected to Antoinette's case if you do look at the Wikipedia page, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time saying that today, um, but if you do go check out the Wikipedia page, um, you will see what I'm talking about, about the missing person. But um, there is also a list of, I think it's two uh, does that have been ruled out as Anth Antoinette. Um, but of course, Antoinette's body has not been recovered that we know of. Um, she may be a doe that just hasn't been named yet, though we can't rule that completely out. Antoinette could still be alive, though, somewhere. Um, and if you have any information about Antoinette's disappearance or her possible whereabouts, please contact the Gallup, New Mexico Police Department. So this is going to be the last case of part one in New Mexico. Um, I wasn't going to cover this next case originally and not because it wasn't worth telling. Uh, it was because I thought it may be told better with the investigating state, but I've already covered Texas for this season um, and I opted to cover it when another case that I was going to cover kind of fell through. I'm still going to tell you that case, but uh, there's a little bit of a twist to it, uh, but that's going to be in part two. I think this case doesn't get much uh, notoriety for a few different reasons, but one of those reasons may be because it crosses states. I'm going to tell you about the disappearance of Skyla Marburger. Skyla is case number 1304DFNM in the Doe Network and case number MP6343 in NamUs. She is or was a juvenile, so her NCMEC is 812-912. Skyla is a Caucasian female born on May 23rd of 1995. She was only three months old. 
at the time of her disappearance and would be 26 now. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, she may use the last name Kerr and or Drakefield and some accounts refer to her as Skyla Kerr uh, or Kerr. It's K-E-R-R. At the time of her disappearance, she was only 18 inches long and 15 pounds. So baby Skyla was born on May 23rd of 95 in a private home in Glorieta, New Mexico. When she was born, there was no medical attention or any official documentation of her birth. You see, Skyla's parents, Richard Marburger and Megan Kerr, say they belong to a religious group that forbids its members from seeking medical assistance when they are sick. Skyla was last seen with her parents in Santa Fe, New Mexico on September 1st of 1995. She was never seen or heard from again after that. Skyla's parents returned home to Houston, Texas without their three-month-old after that date. So odd, right? Well, it gets a little worse. Skyla's parents refused to cooperate with law enforcement in the investigation of their missing daughter. They even went as far as utilizing the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination when they were questioned. But Richard Marburger's mother allegedly told a co-worker that Richard had told her Skyla died suddenly and was buried underneath a tree in a valley. Now, Skyla was not Richard and Megan's first child. Skyla was, uh, I'm sorry, Skyla has an older sister who was born with several medical problems um, that were pretty severe. She was, that daughter was taken away by the state when her parents refused to get her medical help. Megan became pregnant at least one more time after Skyla's disappearance, but I don't know what happened to any subsequent children. Both of Skyla's parents have criminal records and are described as floaters. They were frequently unemployed, lived out of their vehicle, and traveled along the coast of western U.S. in 1995. Now, Skyla was last seen in Santa Fe, New Mexico on September 1st. Her parents ended up in Houston, Texas, which is where Skyla was apparently reported missing to, but police believe that Skyla actually died in late October of 95, and they think that she may have been buried in a national park near Hillsburg, California, because that's where her parents were living at that point in time. So really, Skyla could be anywhere along the southwest coast from California to Texas. I do want to throw the theory, uh, a theory out there that Skyla may not be deceased. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibilities that she was given away or even sold. But if you know what happened to Skyla Marburger are her possible whereabouts. Houston, Texas Police Department is the investigating agency, so you can contact them. Okay, so that ends part one of New Mexico. As crazy as it is, we're only halfway through. That's only half of the cases that I have to tell you about. It's crazy in New Mexico. New Mexico is definitely one of those I'm not going there states. 
So thank you for listening to part one. Please come back next week for part two. I promise you're going to enjoy it just as much as you enjoyed part one. Maybe even more. I don't know. Um, But I still do have five cases to tell you about, and they are pretty interesting. Um, I want to remind you, if you haven't done so already, please go like, uh, favorite, rate, and or review this podcast on whatever platform you listen on if any of those are an option every bit helps um, the ratings help uh, me push me up the chart gets me notoriety the more notoriety I get the more notoriety these missing people get and that's really kind of the um, the point at the end of the day uh, is to get these cases talked about more uh, so uh, if you want to you can still follow the old Facebook it's it's a never to be seen again podcast on Facebook. I'm not sure. I mean, if you search never to be seen again, it'll come up. I do still post there when I released episodes, when I release episodes, I post the, um, the photos and the link, uh, to the anchor app at least, or the anchor website. Uh, so you could listen to it on your web browser from anchor. Um, also, Wanted to remind everyone, if you hadn't done so already, you can go ahead and um, follow the Instagram account. That is a new uh, Instagram account that I created for this podcast. It's State of Missing Pod on Instagram. Uh, So go like that. I I post the pictures there as well. And I notify or I post when the new episode is up. Sometimes I'm a little late on it, but I get around to it within a day or two. So please go ahead and like and follow that um if you have any case suggestions if uh, you want to get in touch with me if you have some questions um if you just want to you know tell me that i'm doing an okay job or i make you sleep really well (laughs) you can go ahead and send me an email at uh state of missing pod at gmail.com. I think it's state of missing pod. Hold on. Let me check. Yeah. It's state of missing pod. I I feel like I do this every week where I forget what the new email address is, but it is state of missing pod at gmail.com. You can email me there or you can still email me at the uh, old email address, which is never to be seen again, podcast at gmail.com. That is still up and running. So if you want to shoot me an email there, um, any case suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Like I said, the next um, state I'm going to cover is definitely going to have to be one of the big states like California or Florida. So if you have any personal connections or you want to hear about a missing persons case out of you know California or Florida, go ahead, shoot me an email, let me know. You don't have to do any research unless you know you have a personal connection to it. I can do all the research. I just need a name and uh i'll i'll add it on the episode you can also message me directly on facebook from the facebook page or on instagram if you want to get in touch with me if you have a case suggestion you can shoot me a message there um and i just i want to really say i appreciate all of you listeners i appreciate everything that you do Um, I appreciate you just tuning in every week and listening to these missing cases that I tell you about. I really enjoy doing this and I really uh, appreciate 
that people want to listen to this. Um, it's not necessarily about me telling it. It's just about letting the world know about these cases that have sometimes seemed to be forgotten. Um, so uh, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back, I guess, next week with part two in New Mexico. Um, and where Mexico, New Mexico is apparently one of the craziest states we've covered thus far. So thank you and have a great week.